You are listening to the FDNY Pearl Podcast, featuring members of the New York City Fire Department. We want to share stories from the field, best practices, lessons learned, and help save lives. Welcome to the FDNY Pro Podcast for Pro EMS. I am your host, Lieutenant Farouk Mohammed, and today we are going to discuss how to better prepare your personnel with the right tools for the job using research and development. Emergency medical services is a continuously evolving field, integrating the latest practices in evidence-based medicine and technology. There is a unit within FDNY that is tasked with identifying and evaluating equipment that improves provider safety and patient care. FDNY's Research and Development Unit, which falls under the FDNY Safety Command, is constantly looking at new ways to incorporate the best equipment to assist our EMTs and paramedics with safely and effectively treating over 1.7 million patients per year. With me today, I have Lieutenant Yonatan Klein. Welcome, Lieutenant Klein, and thank you for being with us today. Thank you for having me. Can you tell us a little bit about your career with the department? Sure. I've been with the FDNY since 2007, starting off as an EMT working at Station 47 in Far Rockaway. In 2009, I was promoted to the rank of paramedic, and a couple years later, I was assigned to the EMS Academy, and where I became a CIC, uh, which is a certified instructor coordinator, and I was uh, tasked with developing high-fidelity training and using simulation. In 2014, I was promoted to the rank of lieutenant, where I worked at Station 43, Coney Island, uh, and I'm currently detailed to the Safety Command over at Research and Development. So, Lieutenant Klein, I noticed that your unit has a motto underneath its emblem. Can you explain it for our listeners? It reads, Expro Fratribus, meaning for my brethren. That's the core focus of R&D, looking out for our brothers and sisters. The Research and Development Unit is a part of the Safety Command, which has been in existence for many years. One event that solidified its existence was a rope rescue in 1980 where two firefighters perished. This tragic event led to the reinstatement of the safety command, which allows our unit to evaluate equipment that increases member safety, improves operations, and improves patient safety. How do you know which equipment to evaluate? How do you know what kind of projects to take on? Our senior leadership assigns projects to us, but some are self-initiated. Some things just catch our attention like when a policy doesn't match the practice in the field. It makes you wonder, is there a reason for that? Is it bad equipment? Is it an outdated policy? Is it a poor practice? We look at all those things in the hopes of identifying the root cause and remedying it. Can you give us an example of what you mean or a specific piece of equipment that comes to mind? So we have a Me Too, which was featured in one of the previous articles in Pro-EMS. That's our uh, medical evacuation transportation unit. It was designed to transport large volumes of patients who need to be recumbent or to lay down. It was also configured for the movement to bariatric patients. Uh, We identified bariatric patients as patients who weigh more than 350 pounds. This vehicle was equipped with a powered winch, a bariatric stretcher, and a ramp to facilitate movement into the vehicle and to the receiving facility. Sounds great, right? So, because of this vehicle's overall height and its length, it's very difficult to navigate down some of the tight streets in the city. It takes them longer to get to the scene, which means our providers are required to manage patients independently in the field for longer periods of time, and that increases patient anxiety. So Chief Booth, Chief EMS, had tasked the Medical Equipment Committee to identify various pieces of equipment in order to improve patient care and make it easier for our crews to manage bariatric patients. So what did your unit do to remedy that problem? How did you address 
that for our field members. I work with Dr. Doug Isaacs. He's the chairperson of the Medical Equipment Committee. And he's also the doctor that oversees our rescue paramedic program. Dr. Isaacs worked in conjunction with EMS Operations to gather data to identify how many bariatric patients are we really treating. There's a lot more patients out there than we thought. And we realized that the treatment, management, and movement and transportation of these patients is very complicated. And we needed to do something. The Medical Equipment Committee started making lists of equipment that we thought would be helpful to our providers in the field. Things like vein illumination to make it easier to start IVs on these patients, a lot of adipose tissue. Textile sheets or disposable moving sheets. Just because wherever they are inside their residence or wherever their acute illness or injury is, we need to get them to that carrying device. Sometimes we can't get a stair chair in there. Sometimes the stair chair can't support their weight. Sometimes it's inaccessible by stretcher. So we needed something. We also looked at stuff like electronic stethoscopes. We also looked at things like powered stretchers and a powered lift gate system. After we compiled all of this data, we sat down as a committee and we looked at all the equipment as a whole. Uh, I'll tell you a little bit about that evaluation process of how we do things a little later on. But we figured out what does and what does not work for our system. There were things that we thought that would be great, but when we started to test them, we realized maybe it's not feasible for us. Maybe this is not for us. So I know that as a result of your research, we now have a bariatric ambulance out on the field and it's doing really well for our crew members and for our patients. Now, when our call takers are getting information, they're identifying patients who exceed 350 pounds. For that, you'll get a response of a bariatric ambulance, a rescue paramedic ambulance, and a HAZTAC EMS officer. Now that you know you have a bariatric patient you're responding to, it's best to send that resource immediately instead of wasting the time finding out later on that you need it. I think it's better to get those operational resources into the game early. It's better to know what you're going into. As a matter of fact, after talking to some of our HAZTAC officers and some of our rescue medics, there's some patients we've seen a few times already. And even though they may not always need that special operations resource, that familiar face over and over again, I believe, is really making a difference in patients' anxiety. Another thing to note is that now that we do have the bariatric ambulance out there on the field, we can keep the METU for other jobs, for an MCI, for example, instead of having to send it for one bariatric patient. Right. Makes a big difference in the operation. I know you're on the Medical Equipment Committee. Can you tell us more about that and break it down for our audience? The Medical Equipment Committee is comprised of various stakeholders all throughout the job. We have members from technical services. These are the people who are responsible for ordering, maintaining all of our equipment, gloves, splints, you name it, it comes from tech services. We also have reps from fleet services. They're responsible for maintaining all of the apparatus. We have a representative from Office of Medical Affairs. We have representatives from OSHA, from the Safety Command, the EMS Academy. We even have representation from the EMTs and Paramedics Union and the Lieutenants and Captains Union. That way we can make sure the members' interests are protected. We also have our citywide ALS coordinator. That's an EMS officer, and they're tasked with medication ordering, overseeing the EMS pharmacy. You know, I don't know if many of our listeners know, we actually have a pharmacy that's staffed by our paramedics that prepare all of our medication inserts to be distributed through the field. We also have representatives from EMS operations. We even have members from HAZTAC, that's the EMS Special Operations Command. We have monthly meetings. We discuss equipment and issues that come up in the field. During these meetings, we review ongoing projects, new projects, and any questions or concerns about equipment that come from the field. I know there's a pilot program going on with bags. Can you tell me a little bit about that? As a vertical city, it can take time to get to our patients. What do you mean exactly when you say vertical city? 
When we get on scene, our clock doesn't stop. We need to make patient contact. Sometimes it requires us to climb several stories to get to patients. And that's assuming it's not a blackout. That can create big operational challenges for us. I remember working during that blackout of 2003 and how we had to climb 15 stories just to get to a patient and then carry them down 15 stories. That was very physically taxing. So these are some of the challenges that we have in New York City. Depending on the location sometimes, it's hard just to get inside of the building. We're not going to take the chance of not having our equipment ready for when we finally do get in. Yeah, absolutely. Knowing this, our providers are trained to bring all their equipment with them in order to provide that point of injury or illness care. They bring everything to you to initiate treatment. Some agencies provide initial care and retreat back to the ambulance to perform higher risk or more complicated procedures. We don't really have that kind of luxury. If you don't have all your gear, those few minutes of you going back to the ambulance trying to get that advanced equipment could mean life or death for your patient. So you have to make sure you have everything right then and there. Yeah, absolutely. And in order to do that, in order to provide that level of care, it requires our members to carry a lot more equipment. We've been using the same design and medical bag for over 20 years. It served us well, but a lot's changed in 20 years. We've doubled the volume of drugs in our formulary. We're providing more comprehensive, more complicated care than ever before. We've integrated new tools into our system, but we've been using the same platform. A few years ago, we wanted to identify our next generation bag. We went to a whole bunch of major companies, and we tried out five different styles of bags. What ended up happening was the crews liked the attributes of certain bags, but there was no one bag that worked for us. Our mission profile is different than the rest of the nation. We bring more equipment to the bedside. The expectations are different. So we ended up sitting down as a committee and identifying all these attributes that the crews found desirable as we realized we need to build a bag for us. So last year, after we had taken all these attributes, we had designed a bag and we put it out in the field. At the end, we looked at all that survey data and we realized that it's not a bad idea, but there are things we need to do to make it work for our members. So did you give these bags to all of the field personnel? So we actually, um, we have our ALS coordinators. They're basically an operational liaison between the division field physicians, EMS operations, and the crews. So they actually identified the 10 busiest ALS units citywide. And we put those bags in those units. And, <laughs> and boy, did they beat those bags up, which is great because it gives us great data. So we started to look at all that feedback, and we realized that this platform's not bad, but we need to really modify it and adjust it to our needs. How often do you exactly get that feedback? Are there forms they fill out? How often is this data received? Is it ongoing or is it for a set period of time? We develop our own evaluation tools, our own surveys, our own forms. What we did was we actually went to the field, we trained these units, and we said, look, when you get to the end of this pilot, then I want you to fill out this survey. We want you to have an open mind. By doing that, we got some very good feedback but a lot of the interesting stuff that you get is that candid feedback. When you go to a station and they put a face with the name and you have that dialogue and you ask them, what do you think? You actually look at them and you go, why won't you just put that in a survey? That's what we're looking for. It's exactly what we're looking for. It's what we strive for, to meet those needs. So we had that bag in 2016, it was in the field. So now we started to look at a whole bunch of things. The military had a uh, load carriage data study where it actually talks about weight distribution and how you match your loadout with your mission profile and what it is that you're looking to get out of this. Why are you carrying this piece of equipment? What is the purpose? What is the reason? There's a risk benefit in everything. 
So we actually designed that bag with shoulder and waist straps because we realized that it can be damaging to your neck, to your upper back, to your shoulders. We want the providers to carry that weight on their waist. These new bags you're talking about, what do they carry exactly? Sure, so we actually, um, the original bag was just an airway bag, which was comprised of all the contents in the Roxroom bag, plus the two CPAPs and their intubation kit. Now, we actually developed two bags. One of them is going to replace their current trifold medical bag, and the other one's going to replace one of their oxygen bags. So inside that airway bag, it's going to hold just that, their intubation kit, all the contents of their oxygen bags, plus their CPAPs. But we realized that when we built that original bag, we were building around equipment, as opposed to building catered to their mission profile, which actually caused us to complete redesign of our intubation kit, separating adult and pediatric equipment to make it more easy for the crews to navigate their way through the bag. Their medical bag holds all the other content, which is our medication insert, our little miniature insert. That's a little small bag that we had developed for medications that go into shortage or anytime we have items that are very expensive, like IO needles, for example, or glucometer test strips. Those things get expensive, so we like to have a little more control over how much stock is out on the units. That makes sense to me because I remember how units used to take medications out of their bags and hoard them in their vehicles. And sometimes these medications would go left unnoticed, expire and never get used. Keeping those medications separated in your drug bag is a good way to remind members to leave those medications where they belong. So when they're needed, we have them for our patients. It's a good way to keep track of the ones on shortage. It's not a perfect system, but it's a system that we found works for us. We have over a thousand medication inserts that cycle through our city because of our distribution model, because we're, we cover such a large geographical area. We maintain over a thousand medication inserts citywide. It's a lot. It's a lot of drugs in rotation. I recently had uh, some paramedic friends from Germany visit New York and I showed them our medication inserts and they were surprised by how many medications we carry. Some of our listeners from around the world may not know how advanced we really are. Do you know how many medications we carry? We carry over 30 medications in our, between our medication insert and that mini insert that I said we use for drug shortage items. So besides these bags that are soon to be implemented in the field, can you tell me about some other equipment that you've been involved with? Recently we had switched over our needle decompression needles, migrating from a 14-gauge over-the-needle catheter that was 2 inches in length to a 14-gauge catheter that was 3 and a quarter inches in length. So what prompted you to change to this new catheter? Originally it actually started out as a, one of the equipment we looked at for bariatrics. We realized more adipose tissue probably means you need a longer needle to get to the pleural space. But then we started doing some research. We started looking at pre-hospital trauma life support data, PHTLS, and TECC data, right? Tactical Emergency Combat Care, and TCCC, which stands for Tactical Casualty Combat Care. When we looked at that military data, it showed a two-inch needle only hit the pleural space 54% of the time. So that means one in every two needle decompressions they were performing, this life-saving skill was not, at, not reaching the pleural space. So originally started out as a bariatric project, but then we realized that it actually benefits all of our patients in the field. So we put all that data together, we presented it to our medical equipment committee, and we agreed that this was the right thing to serve our communities. And we made the switch. Is there any other equipment that you can tell us about that you've been involved with? We looked at stair chairs. Currently, we use a stair chair that has two fixed guide wheels 
and it's only rated for up to 350 pounds. But as we just talked about previously, there were a lot more patients than we thought that weighed more than 350 pounds. We realized that maybe it's better to move to a four-wheeled stair chair. The chairs that we ended up looking at were designed to sustain a load up to 500 pounds. And by having four wheels as opposed to two, it doesn't eliminate, but it reduces significantly the amount of times our providers have to tilt our stair chairs backwards, which is a cause for potential injury and imp increasing patient anxiety. And it makes it easier to maneuver those patients. As a paramedic on the field, I remember using that two-wheeled stair chair. And we had 350-pound patients we would put on the chair, but I know we couldn't just get any four-wheel stair chair to replace that old one because those chairs are much heavier in comparison and as you put it earlier this is a vertical city where we carry all of our equipment to the patient finding the right piece of equipment is key so Farouk aside from those four-wheeled stair chairs that we're putting on our new ambulances we put those tracked stair chairs on our bariatric ambulance so that chair was rated up to 500 pounds and it had those tank-like treads that folded down and allowed the patient to glide down the stairs in the hopes of making it easier to move those heavier patients. Now in the future, we actually have all of our EMS supervisors are gonna be carrying this tracked stair chair. So I know a lot of people in the field are probably wondering, like our listeners, we have tracked chairs on our ambulances, how come they won't do that? So this goes back to that conversation we had before about being a vertical city. It's a game of ounces, not a game of pounds, it's a game of ounces. And every ounce that we add to the weight of the equipment our crews carry, the more stress and fatigue it puts on their body, it makes them tired, it makes them more risk for injury, and we realize that. So that business model of having a four-wheeled stair chair on the ambulance, they can use that routinely, but if they encounter a patient that they really could benefit from a track stair chair, they can special request that resource, the officer can show up and provide that chair. So what advice would you give to other agencies looking into purchasing new equipment? I highly recommend for larger agencies to put together a committee to look at equipment. By the way, everybody who's on your committee, they don't need to be an expert at everything. Sometimes we actually call in people who are subject matter experts in their field to help us out on projects. There's some other things you gotta take into consideration too. When you're a bigger agency like us, one thing we know about this process, our biggest cost isn't usually the equipment. It's actually training the members. Uh, you have to take that into account. So when you look at a piece of equipment, don't just think about taking a credit card, buying that piece of equipment and putting it on the vehicle. That's the easy part. We can't just give our crews new equipment and say, here you go. We have to make sure they're well-trained and know how that equipment works. It's a safety issue for our members and for our patients. Absolutely. Training actually serves a very big role in our medical equipment committee. The process, the implementation, how to get the guys trained, how to teach people how to troubleshoot equipment, that's incredibly important. That's very valuable. One thing I recommend everybody to do, big, small, doesn't matter. Before you purchase anything, anything at all, Take a piece of paper and write down a description of what you're actually looking for. Beneath it, write that operational benefit of that piece of equipment. How is this piece of equipment going to serve you and your needs? Then do your homework. Look at what's out there. Look at what other people are using. Start a dialogue with neighboring communities. Figure out what does and what does not work. You'll find similarities between your agencies and that may actually help develop relationships as well down the road. I'll tell you right now, on the surface, a majority of things out there may seem comparable to what you currently own, but such is not the case. For big items, you may benefit from doing an RFI process. That's a request for information. That's basically you standing on top of a mountain saying, hey, we're looking for this item. By doing that, companies will come seek you out. 
and present data to you. It not only streamlines this whole evaluatory process, it gives people transparency as to how equipment's evaluated and selected. And you may also find something that you didn't even know existed that might be perfect for you. You know, that perfect piece of equipment's out there waiting for you, you don't even know it. There's some other things that we do too. We actually conduct our own in-house testing here. We usually do it at the EMS Academy. Training is your biggest test bed for equipment. That's a great proving ground. You can identify how easy a piece of equipment is to use, how easy it is to assemble, and you can basically assess all these different attributes of the equipment. One thing that we had was there's no evaluation tool to compare and contrast all the equipment that's on the market. That kind of leads us into developing our own evaluations and scoring criteria. If equipment performs well during in-house testing, it typically will advance to a field pile with one exception, equipment that's rarely used in the field. We have EMS providers that have used traction splints maybe once in their entire 20-year career. Uh, it'd be really difficult, near impossible, to evaluate that piece of equipment in the field. We sat down on the committee and said, well, what do we do about this problem? And the answer became very clear to us. When our EMTs and medics came for their refresher and they took their state exam, after they were done, we showed them the products that were successful during in-house testing, and we demonstrated how to use each one. We gave them the opportunity to try them out and provide feedback to us. And we realized that that's probably going to be the easiest way to test this piece of equipment. It took us like seven months to really get that going. You're talking about 300, 350 plus people. And they were shown two different splints and they were just trained on that one in Refresher. So it, it really is a lot of information to go over with them. Thanks for evaluating this equipment and helping with getting it out there. Uh, honestly, it's, it's a team effort. It's the whole committee. I'll tell you, training plays a huge role, like I said, when it comes to testing stuff. Some things don't do well and we discontinue the project, which is okay. So one thing people always say is, well, I remember back in the day we looked at some item and we didn't get it. We didn't like it, we didn't get it. And I go, okay, and? And they go, well, you know, that was a bad pilot program. That's not true. That's a great pilot program. We didn't buy something the members didn't like. Right, and you always learn something from that experience. You might actually find what does work best just from something that doesn't work well. And there's, there's one other lesson we learn with all these projects is that... Uh, if nothing exists to meet your needs, design it. Make sure your equipment fits your business model. Make sure your bags and your equipment loadout fits what your agency needs. You know, don't try and conform to just any item just because it exists. Find what works for you. So do we actually design our own equipment sometimes? Apparatus, yeah, more commonly. But our bags are totally custom, all of them. Well, Lieutenant Klein, Thank you for joining us today. I think we learned a lot about how the safety unit evaluates, tests, and uh, purchases new equipment. It was really informative, and we appreciate you coming down. Thank you for your time, Farouk. I also want to thank our listeners for tuning in to our FDNY Pro podcast. We hope you join us again to hear from other FDNY EMS professionals. I am your host, Lieutenant Farouk Mohammed, signing off. Be safe out there. FDNY Pro is online at fdnypro.org. Subscribe today and get inside access to the FDNY. Learn more about our publications, professional conferences, and other tools for first responders. Train with New York's Bravest. Twenty-four hours a day, seven days a week, three hundred and sixty-five days a year, and when seconds count. The men and the women of the FDNY are there for us to protect us and keep us safe when the unthinkable happens. No matter the challenge, no matter the danger, our firefighters and EMTs serve with honor, dedication, and bravery. 
New York's bravest are there for us. Let's be there for them. Your support of the FDNY Foundation ensures that the world's best fire department has the world's best training, equipment, and education. Go to FDNYFoundation.org and help New York's bravest save a life today.